O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. In the lesson from Job, we are nearing the end of the book that has described Job's ordeal. Job wants to ensure the transmission of his message for future audiences. And he says, quote, Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead, they, meaning his words, were engraved into a rock and would endure forever. Next, he makes an affirmation of faith in God when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Job further believes that after his death, he will see God, knowing him to be Job's advocate. Job's story in this lesson begs the question, what do you confidently know with certainty? Another way to frame that question is to ask, what are you sure of? Job is saying that he's sure that when he opens his eyes in death, that God will be there. In the lesson from 2 Thessalonians, St. Paul is admonishing the Christians in Thessalonica not to be deceived by false doctrines and innovations in doctrine that are perpetrated by those who have no authority to establish doctrine. The issue in question was whether the day of the Lord had or had not already come. St. Paul is exposing this doctrine that the day of the Lord has already come as heresy and is advising the Thessalonians not to be deceived by it. In our evangelism study, we're learning that there are three phases in the evangelism process. The first is demonstration. And in the demonstration phase, the Christian models the Christian life for the observers who don't know Christ. The second phase, which we will be learning about tonight, is proclamation. Whereas in the first phase, we communicate Christ through our Christ-like behavior, in the second phase, we actually explain in words the story of Jesus and his redemptive activity as it was manifested in the Incarnation and in the salvation history, as well as how it has played out in our own lives. In this proclamation phase, the Christian testifies to what Jesus has done in his or her own personal life. Proclamation is the good news of the gospel. The first two phases consist of our activity in concert with the work of the Holy Spirit, who's working in and through us when we're at the top of our game. The third phase is transformation, which is the time that the hearer makes his or her own confession of faith, in effect saying, I want to have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. And in the transformation phase, the Holy Spirit is the primary operative agent in getting this person to the third phase. 
so that when we do our part in concert with the Holy Spirit during the demonstration and proclamation phases, the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts a person of their sin and toward a recognition of their need for a Savior. So St. Paul is telling the Thessalonians that God chose them to be the first fruits of salvation through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose, he called them, just like he called you through St. Paul's proclamation of the good news, so that they might be able to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, he instructs his readers to, first of all, stand firm. And second, hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us. St. Paul's admonition to the Thessalonians is the same as it is to us. Stand firm, hold to the tradition of the faith as it was once presented to the saints. Do not be deceived by purveyors of false doctrines and do not allow yourselves to be led down the primrose path. In the gospel reading from Luke, Jesus is confronted and questioned by a group of Sadducees. Now, the party of Sadducees were a religious group in Jesus' day who did not believe in resurrection. That is, they believed when you're dead, you're dead. In order to trap Jesus, they asked this absurd question about marriage, being widowed and remarriage, and who in the afterlife will the person be married to if she was married to all seven brothers? Keep in mind that in Christian theology, seven is the number of completions. So if you've had seven, seven husbands, you've probably had as many as it would be possible to have. Jesus' response is that um, the questioners are confusing life in this age with life in the next, when in reality, the structures are very different. Jesus goes on to discuss the nature of resurrection with them. To God, all the saints from antiquity are alive. And Jesus tells him, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And to God, all the saints from the past are alive in him. So that everyone who ever lived in the faith are alive in God. And with that statement about death and resurrection, the scene closes. In the lesson from Job, Job desperately wants the story of his ordeal to be preserved. He wants others to know what he has discovered about God in all this. When I was in seminary, two of my professors wrote a book for the general lay public entitled Storytime, God's Story and Ours. 
there is a collection of stories in Scripture that the composite of it forms God's story. So that if you put it all together, Hebrew Scripture and what we call the New Testament, it's God's story. Um, as, as you know, we have three grandsons that are about the same age. And one of them is um, really interested in science and how things work and how things are assembled and how they go together. And so when we take him to buy books, he's interested in, in books that are based on things like the National Geographic stories of how the earth is and how various things in the ocean and on the earth and in space and so forth operate. So um, after we made such a visit to the bookstore, we took one of the other boys who happens to be Gabriel and um, to the bookstore for him to pick out books that he would want. And in as much as, as, as he really seems to like a lot of the same things that Alex likes, we were telling him about these books that Alex got, or that Alex got, and and um, he looked up at his grandmother and he said, "Graham," he said, "I don't want those books." He said, "I want books that tell a story." You see, each of us, like Job, has a story. And you'll hear a lot of discussion in our time about finding yourself and finding your story. But if you're a Christian, finding your story is not the most important endeavor. The most important endeavor for us as Christians is to find out how our stories fit in with God's story. The important story here is God's story. Now, Job wanted people to, to, through antiquity, to have an understanding of the experiences that he had. But the emphasis wasn't so much on the experiences that Job had had, but rather what it is that those experiences conveyed about who God is and about God's story. Which is what enables him to say at the end of this ordeal that he knows that his Redeemer lives. Handel would later make that statement um, Famous in his Messiah. I know that my Redeemer lives. So, whereas Job is desperately wanting his story to be preserved, it's really that he wants people to come to know who God is through the experiences that he had.
the epistle lesson is teaching us that there's more to be revealed and to participate in this more. It's important for us to stand firm and to hold fast to the traditions that we've been taught. As a priest, I'm charged with passing on the gospel to you as it was once presented to the saints, as Job indicates in his very short epistle. St. Paul is telling the people at Thessalonica that, that they're not to be swayed by contemporary dogmas that are divergent with the truth of Scripture as understood by the tradition. There are a lot of theologians writing nowadays about um, uh, challenging this idea that the evangelicals have, have perpetrated about um, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Arguing that there is no understanding of scripture apart from the tradition. It's important for us to understand we're not the first generation to pick up holy scripture and to try to make sense out of it. And that saints through the ages have done that. And it is incumbent upon us to have an understanding of their understanding. Otherwise, we run the risk of making interpretations purely on a 21st century perspective. Oftentimes making the mistake that our worldview is commensurate with theirs. So we need to take the words to heart that St. Paul tells the Thessalonians that they're not to be swayed by contemporary dogmas that are divergent with the truth of Scripture as understood by the tradition. The lessons are about time and eternity. The lessons are about endurance, preservation, and anticipating a future in Jesus Christ. And we are to avoid being deceived by doctrines that are divergent with what we have been taught to be the truth. Because truth doesn't change. The truth is the truth. And the same truth that existed in Jesus' time is the same truth that exists today in spite of narratives that want to contradict that and undo it. As Christians, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. I find St. Augustine's juxtaposition of the city of God with the secular city or the city of man to be extremely helpful in conceptualizing this contrast. In the latter part of the 20th century, there was a philosophical school that emerged that has become known as postmodernism, which has come on the scene to drive secular, social, and political institutions. Turn on any news network and you'll see the expression of postmodernism. Public education is loaded with it. It's the major conflict between socio-political parties in our time. 
The hallmark of postmodernism is deconstructionism, which is the dismantling of the institutional structures that built Western civilization. You can listen to political and social figures, intellectuals and elite, who would lead you to believe that there's never been anything redemptive happen in this country in the last 200 and some odd years. Among these institutional structures that have built Western civilization that the postmoderns want to tear down and destroy is the Judeo-Christian tradition. And one of our most prized dimensions of that, the family. This week, Kamala Harris decided that the government's not doing enough for children. And so um, one of her proposals, if she's elected president, is that the school day will be extended till six o'clock in the evening. Okay. Now implicit in that is this idea that parents aren't doing a very good job raising their children. They need the government to do more of that. We're not doing enough of that between eight and three. There needs to be more of that. So we'll add three hours to that at the end of the day. This postmodern movement is characterized by a pervasive skepticism for any and all existing structures because they all know better. Existing structures need to be torn down and destroyed because everything in their world is highly subjective with a rejection of any kind of objective truth. So a postmodern will tell you there is no such thing as objective truth. Everything is relative. There are no absolutes. Logic and reason have no place in one's thinking about experience. Group identities and ideologies are essential in establishing and maintaining political and economic power, which is that which is of primary importance. There is no sense of individual responsibility. Grasping power wherever one can find it is essential to postmodernism. Reality is what you want it to be, and ideologies are formed by creating a narrative, and the narrative replaces any and all truth claims. So it's all about the narrative. Things really began to shift in Western civilization with the Enlightenment which propelled us into what became known as the modern period, which sought to use science in search of, quote, an abstract truth of life, end quote. Now, the scientific system worked fairly well for us. 
right? Because science was one of those things which, as they collected more data, they would tell you, well, we were wrong about that. But we're right about what we're going to tell you now. Right? Which is why when you look at healthcare, um, you don't know what to put, put your mouth anymore. Because no matter what you do, in a few years, there will be a scientific study that says that it was all wrong. You shouldn't have been doing it. And we say, okay, and, 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 and then we buy into what science says that the current perspective is. Okay? So, so the problem with science is that there's been a lot of shifting sands. And, and the postmoderns became really restive with that. And so they decided that really what we need is not any kind of quantifiable data or evidence what, what, what we need is a narrative that we can make believable for people and that we can sell to people that's based on group identities. So these existing structures that we've had, either through the Judeo-Christian tradition or the scientific ones, or both, have been determined to be considered absurd and meaningless structures and need to be eradicated. Identities are what's important. And identities, according to the postmoderns, are entirely communal. Individual identities are obsolete. Your identity is assigned by the group that you happen to be with. Many of us sitting here, members of the most unfortunate of those groups, the white American male. Your identity is endemic to your particular social group, which could be sexual, ethnic, economic, or whatever. That's postmodernism. Postmodernism completely rejects the structures of Western civilization that they consider to be filiocentric, that is, male-dominated. We have the problems that we have because Western civilization has been paternalistic. Ask any postmodern. They'll be more than happy to tell you that. The problems that we face today are a product of white male privilege that is oppressive to women and minorities. Christianity is perceived as the institution that legitimated these oppressive structures. which is one of the reasons why we, we have to go. Since these folks don't believe in the rule of reason and logic, they make no attempt to be reasonable or logically consistent, and there is no room for dialogue or the exchange of ideas. If you get into a discussion with a postmodern, within the third exchange, they will have determined that your problem is you're sexist, um, you're homophobic, your xenophobic or whatever other um, bias that you have to have because you don't agree with their narrative. 
So there's no room for dialogue. There's no, there's no place for discussion or the exchange of ideas. In their view, there is no freedom of speech except to the extent that it promotes their agenda. So that arguments with postmoderns quickly deteriorate into what Aristotle would have referred to as abusive and circumstantial ad hominems. Their struggle is for the acquisition of power and control and to usurp it from the hands of the oppressive groups, which for the most part are composed of privileged white patriarchal males who seek to maintain control by oppressing everyone else. The social landscape is a Hobbesian battleground of identity groups, that is, Groups like oppressed immigrants, racial minorities, gays, lesbians, transsexual, third wave feminists, I mean the list in the, 30, in the 33 different genders. Uh, the number 33 was a couple weeks ago, there may be more now. Postmoderns have no appreciation or gratitude for the accomplishments of Western civilization across the centuries. As Jordan Peterson says, they don't have a shred of gratitude. And he goes on to say that if you're without gratitude, then you're driven by resentment. Peterson identifies what he calls the evil triad, consisting of resentment, arrogance, and deceit. You see, these people have contrived a worldview that has become their narrative. And that narrative for them is reality. Since there is no objectivity or absolutes, there's no way to validate their perspective. Neat little system they have going. In postmodernism, there are three classes. There are victims who are the alienated and the dispossessed for whatever reason. There are victimizers, victimizers who are the horrible people who oppress them and who are holding them hostage as victims. And then there are the rescuers who are the postmoderns who are determined to liberate their victims. And they are the social justice warriors. The paradoxical part of all this is that they care nothing about the victims. Their commitment is to the narrative and to the establishment of a power base in order to promote the narrative. In their world, everything is about the conflict between the oppressed and the oppressors. Karl Marx was a good example of this. The poor against the rich, the predators against the victims, and the postmodern pseudo-advocates who are out to liberate them all. It's not a pleasant picture. In my 68 years, I've seen nothing like it. And I lived through the 60s. The difficulty is with postmodernism that there's a seduction to it for Christians. It was the same seduction that St. Paul's addressing to the church at Thessalonica 
who want to believe that the day of the Lord has already come. And St. Paul is saying, that's not what we told you. That's not consistent with Orthodox teaching. But see, there was a part of the, the group at Thessalonica that wanted to be able to believe that because it was something tangible that they could hold on to. And there wasn't all the mystery associated with something yet to come. So Christians today have the, the same seduction to postmodernism as the church at Thessalonica had in Paul's time. After all, we're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to care for the poor among us. But Christianity is not just about social justice and loving everybody. It is about that. Christianity is about loving people. Christianity is about what's make, what, wanting what's best for people. Christianity is about demonstrating the good news, and it's about proclaiming the good news of salvation to people who are in desperate need of it. But in Christianity, we also talk about personal responsibility. We also talk about being on a pathway to holiness, about living a sanctified and holy life. Being Christian doesn't give us the luxury of believing that the world's divided into three groups of people, victims, victimizers, and, and rescuers. What I find interesting about postmodernism on that score is that there was a family therapist back in the 1960s whose name was Virginia Satir. And she was talking about the dynamics in pathological families. And in her two primary books, Conjoint Family Therapy, and a book she wrote for the general public called People Making, um, she talks about how it is that pathological families tend to see there being only three roles available in the social system called the family. Uh, Virginia Satir was a social worker, clinical social worker. And, and so she was interested in systems. And, 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 and she said, it's, it's the pathological family that divides social roles into victim, victimizer, and rescuer. And that's postmodernism. Which, if you look at it from a purely scientific, psychological perspective, these people are pretty primitive. But there's that seduction because Christians love one another. We do. And I think half for centuries.
But Christianity is also about loving God. And it's about loving God primarily. And it is through the love of God that we are enabled to truly love other people. If you don't love God, you can't love other people. So if they are successful, and we pray that they won't be, of eradicating the structure out of which our faith comes, there will be no love, because God is love. So Christianity is about loving God and, and about following Jesus and about doing the right thing. We all know that. One of the downsides about preaching in churches is that you're always preaching to the choir. So Christianity is about God and about how God transforms lives. So St. Paul admonished the people at Thessalonica to stand firm and to hold fast to the traditions, which as Christians we need to do when secular forces are seeking to deconstruct that which we hold to be sacred. And it's really important for us not to jump on the bandwagon with them. One of the things about heresies throughout time and memorial is that there has been enough of a shred of truth in heresies to catch our attention. And then when you really begin to unpack it, you begin to see where they err and how they deviate from the tradition that was passed on to us by the saints. So these lessons remind us to look at our narrative in the context of God's narrative. How does your life fit into the life of God? How does your story comport to the story of God? Where, where does your story fit into that? That's the most important question. That's what it is that Job wanted posterity to know about his ordeal that even though he suffered, God was with him throughout that, and at the end of it, he knew confidently and without question that his Redeemer liveth. And he wanted people to know that for all time. Because that's what happens when you engrave things into stone. And the lesson from Second Thessalonians which is not inconsistent with the messages of Timothy to Timothy is for us to stand firm 
in the faith as it was once delivered to the saints. And that's our responsibility as Christians. And when we're successful at doing that, then when the day of the Lord comes, we'll be ready for it. 